All right, friends, hope you had a good lunch. We're going to get started now. Our goal is to be done by 2 o'clock. So this session is going to be combining my session three and then Q&A with me and Pastor Dan together. So that's the goal. Um, this one is on what are common arguments against complementarianism. And there are lots of them. Uh, in, in the book by Wayne Grudem that I have on your handout there, he has over 100 such arguments, and I'm subjectively selecting a dozen. So if I don't hit yours, you can ask it in the Q&A. So I'm going to survey 12 what I think are some of the most common objections, and I'm going to respond, and I'm leaning largely on, on Grudem and, and others in, in my responses. So let's, let's roll through these. I'll go quickly. And we'll get right to Q&A because that's what's more interesting anyway. All right. So argument one, <clears throat> if a husband has authority that his wife doesn't share, then the wife is not equal. Heard that one? It's, it's probably the, the fundamental argument against complementarianism. You talk about equal and dignity and value, different or distinct in role. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound logical. If you're different in role, then you're unequal. So here, here are several ways to respond to that. And again, I'm, I'm leaning on Grudem here. He says we must distinguish between different, distinguish different senses of equal. If it's true that Adam and Eve were created equal in several ways, but equal value doesn't imply sameness in authority or roles. Further, many relationships among people involve equal value but difference in role and authority. So I think a good illustration of this is pick a sports team that you like, a professional team. Typically it has players, and those are the ones you know the best, and it has a manager, sometimes a general manager, an owner. Well, there's a pecking order in authority there. But that doesn't mean that, that the owner is more important, like, like, in a, like superior in, over the players. Like, if anything, you like the players the best. Um, further, uh, this, this blurs the distinction by using equal and superior in a vague, undefined way. So, of course, Adam and Eve were not equal, if equal means the same in every respect, or equal in authority. The real question is whether they were equal in value as creatures made in God's image, and, and, and that is the case. Uh, they were equal in that way, not in authority. Uh, last part to this answer is that this argument assumes that difference in authority implies difference in value, but we know that's not the case in human relationships. Think parents and children. They don't share the same authority, yet we do say they're equal in value. All right, that's argument one. I'm moving quickly. Argument number two. Jesus opposed patriarchy by treating women with honor and dignity. So this is a very common argument. People say, look how Jesus just was so countercultural in how he related to women. So that supports egalitarian, egalitarianism. Like, whoa, whoa that doesn't follow. Uh, so, of course, we concede, we, we celebrate that Jesus treated women the way he did. It's beautiful. And, and Christianity was very countercultural in how Christians treated women. Today, we don't realize that as much because our, our culture has, has shifted so much. So what Jesus did was, was beautiful and challenging and rebuking to the people in his day. But he didn't overthrow all male leadership. He chose 12 disciples, and they were all male. Uh, he, he had apostles governing uh, as the authorities over the early church. So 
That argument I don't find persuasive. Third argument, Galatians 3.28 teaches that men and women are equal in every way. Let me quote that to you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, uh, this, this does teach unity among the diverse people in the body of Christ. But does it teach that we're all the same or we all have the same roles? Not at all. Uh, th this can't teach that all role distinctions are, are abolished in light of Christ's work because in the very testament that Galatians appears in, there are commands that God gives to people that flow from their roles. So look at the household codes, commands to husbands, commands to wives, commands to children, etc. So this doesn't mean that all such distinctions are abolished there. And there are social implications in this passage, but there are other texts in the New Testament that explain what they are and what they're not. So we have to read Galatians 3.28 in light of the other texts. So an egalitarian move is to start with Galatians 3.28, make that the lodestar, the, the, the lens which, which you read, through which you read everything else, and it kind of explains away the objectionable bits. And I think that's a, that's a poor way to, to handle that. Argument four, I'll take a little bit more time with this one. Uh, Ephesians 5.21 commands husbands and wives to submit to each other. All right, let me read the passage. I'm going to read the whole sentence. So I have to back up to verse 18. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And with that command, be filled with the Spirit, he then has five participles that flow from that. I, I take them as result, result, result participles. So be filled with the Spirit with the result that, boom, 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 boom. Here they are. Uh, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. So some people refer to this as mutual submission, submitting to one another. Uh, so a, a husband and a wife mutually submit. That's mutual submission. Husband submits to the wife. Wife submits to the husband. Now, if by mutual submission you mean love one another and be considerate of one another's needs, that's true. But is that what Paul's teaching here? So if you look at the context uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul commands, be filled with the Spirit. These results follow. And with the final result, submitting to one another, then follow these three sections of husbands, wives, parents, children, uh, masters, and slaves. And he's applying what that submitting to one another looks like. Would we say that masters should submit to slaves? Would we say that parents should submit to children? Is that, do you want to argue that way? I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting, getting testy. I know you're not making the argument. I'm pretending you're making the argument. Uh, so why would we say then that husbands submit to wives? So I, I find this very, very unpersuasive. The Bible never says that husbands must submit to their wives. Never. Um, and really, uh, the, this, this position depends on giving the Greek term here. It's hupatasso, uh, submitting, giving it a meaning that it doesn't have elsewhere. 
It does, that word, hupotasso, does not mean be nice or be generous or be considerate or be thoughtful or be caring or put someone's interests first. It means to submit. Do any of you have any background in the, the military in some sense? A few of you? Uh, I see at least three hands. How would it work if you were in the military and you said, hey, mutual submission, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's rank, right? And there's a clear order. And you know who to salute to and what to do when you see them and all kinds of you know, pecking orders. Uh, that's how it works. Well, that's how Ephesians 5 and 6 is, is, is coming out, is there's, there's a, a God-ordained ranking, ordering. And this hupotasso is a word that refers to one submitting to, to another, not vice versa. So some people will reply, well, what do you do with the words one another? I mean, that's in the Greek text, one another, submitting to one another. What, how does it even make sense? Well, that, that term, one another, sometimes means some to others, not everyone to everyone. So I think that's what it means here. Uh, a key passage is Revelation 6, 4, where it says that the rider on the red horse was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. Think about that. Slay one another. Kill one another. So I guess it could be like, all right, on the count of three, we're going to kill each other. Ready? One, two, psh, all right, we both died at the same time. I think it more likely slaying one another is one slaying another. It's one to the other, not mutual killing, all right? And I could give you, give you other examples, but that, that one's an especially clear one. Uh, one more example is Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 is talking about someone who has a spirit who is bearing the burden of another Christian. He's not saying, all right, you two burdened people, swap burdens. <laughs> no, you've got a burden and you need to bear it. It's one to the other. It's not mutual burden bearing. Here in Ephesians 5.21, I think that's the sense that Paul intends. The context fits or requires that meaning because the word hupotasso means submit to. It requires that sense of one to the other. I don't think it's re reciprocal. So one way to paraphrase Ephesians 5.21 is be subject to others in the church who are in positions of authority over you. Now, some might retort that uh, I'd still like to use the phrase mutual submission. Uh, I know there are people who use that phrase who are complementarians, and there's a way to, that what they're communicating is we want to communicate, be like Jesus, and be especially loving, and lay down your rights, and, and serve, be sacrificial. And I, I, I understand that. I, I don't recommend using the term mutual submission because it seems to nullify male leadership in marriage. And I, here, so here, let me give you an example. Campus Crusade uh, uses an alternate wording that I think gets it right. It says, in a marriage, Campus Crusade for Christ, they're not that called that anymore, they're called crew. Uh, in a marriage lived according to these truths, the love between husband and wife will show itself in listening to each other's viewpoints valuing each other's gifts, wisdom and desires, honoring one another in public and private, always seeking to bring benefit, not harm to one another. I'd rather talk like that. Amen to that. 
And then save the word submission for one to the other, not to each other. So to summarize, a husband and wife should sacrificially and unselfishly love one another, but Paul does not command a husband to submit to his wife. In all of Greek literature, the word submit refers to being subject to someone else's authority. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep rolling. If you want to come back to Q&A, you can, you can uh, hone in on, there, on that if you'd like. Number five, the, word, the Greek word kephale, usually translated head, means source or preeminent one, not person in authority. This is a debate because of Ephesians 5, 23, and 1 Corinthians eleven three, which say that the husband is the head, the kephale, of his wife. The head. So some argue that kephale means head, like the head of a river, the source. So the, he- the husband's the source of his wife. And these seem to me like desperate attempts to dismiss the concept of authority in the husband-wife relationship. I don't know of anyone who's given more detailed care to this than Wayne Grudem. He's written articles, very detailed articles. I'm just going to summarize his argument here, which I find compelling. So uh, in several points here, you have to figure out what a word means by examining how people use it. So what he did is he uh, used this amazing database that will locate every time a Greek word is used in the literature we have, the extant literature, and you can go, you can back it up uh, way before Christ and way after Christ and see how people are using that word. So he did that, and he, he cataloged them all. Um, and what he found is that this word kephale never once takes a meaning source without authority, as egalitarians are wanting to claim. Further, the passages that refer to Christ as head cannot be used to deny the idea of authority. So Christ is the head of the church. So does that mean he's the source of the church, but not in any sense it's authority? Christ is the head over all creation. Christ is the head. To, to, to deny authority there doesn't make sense of those passages. Further, if you list out the ancient texts where one person is the head of another person, so X is the head of Y, in, in such cases, it's person X is a person in authority over person Y, over and over and over and over. That's in literature outside the New, the New Testament. Further, the meaning source, so like the husband is the source of his wife, I don't think makes sense. In what sense am I the source of Jenny Nacelli? And then further, all the, the lexicons, the, the recognized lexicons like BDAG, Bauer, Denker, Art, and Gingrich uh, for ancient Greek, uh, they give the meaning for kephale as person and authority over. None that I know of give the meaning source. Two more arguments here. The meaning, one who does not take advantage of his body, that's how some want to translate this, is mentioned in no lexicon, proven by no ancient citation. And then the meaning preeminent one, is likewise mentioned in no lexicon and proven by no ancient citation. So it seems to me like special pleading, like it's egalitarians looking at a hard text to them and not wanting it to mean what it says and just grasping for arguments to make it fit and the arguments are weak. That's, that's my assessment there. Here's argument six. Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands because he didn't want to offend the patriarchal culture of the day, especially the Roman leaders. The idea here is that, that Paul is writing a letter and he, he knows that the, the, the power brokers of the day are going to be seeing his letter and learning about what he's teaching and he doesn't want to offend them. So he kind of 
kind of concedes or compromises to go along with the culture so that he doesn't make waves. Well, to me, that sounds like saying he's going to say something that's wrong in order to advance the gospel. And that's just not something that God does. Uh, we, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to uh, say that that would be a strategy that's wise and something we should commend. Now, David Stone Brewer, he's a, an, a, an evangelical scholar for many years, was at Tyndall House in Cambridge, England. He's an egalitarian scholar who takes a different view on the household code. So Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and 6, Titus 2, 1 Peter 2 and 3. And he argues that these household codes adapt the Aristotelian three rules of household submission. And what we should, because Paul's adapting these from Aristotle, we should treat these like Paul's quoting Menander or Eratus or Epimenides in, in Acts 17 or 1 Corinthians 15 or Titus 1. So he's saying Paul cites pagans, and so we don't have to follow what he says. Well, I find that very unconvincing. Paul thoroughly reworks the household codes in light of the gospel. He's not merely citing Aristotle. Uh, if you want to track that argument down, there's an, there's an article you can get it free online by Andrew Wilson from 2013 called Five Forms of Egalitarianism with the Critique of David and Stone Brewer's View of the Household Codes. It's a short little article that will engage more with that view. Rolling light, right along here. Argument seven. Women today do not need to follow the command about wearing head coverings, so they also don't need to follow the commands about wives submitting to their husbands or about women not serving as pastors. Okay, I'm going to take a little more time on this one. I think Mel and a few others asked about this before. Uh, first off, I just remembered, I didn't put on your handout, there's an article by Ben Merkel that addresses this. It's in Jets. I forget the title. Uh, if you Google Nacelli, Ben Merkel, First Timothy, it'll, it should come up because I, I blogged about it. Uh, but it's, what he does is he looks at First Timothy 2 and First Corinthians 11 and works through how is it that we can say that Paul is arguing from principles rooted in the created order and have in First Timothy 2 a practice that's true at all times in all cultures, that is a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, and in another passage have a, a, a practice wearing head coverings that is not transcultural. How is that consistent? And he works through that really well. The, the gist of the, well, I've got those notes here. So let's, let's jump in here. I'm going to share uh, first Grudem 6 responses and, and then add to it based on what I learned from researching head coverings. I just wrote a little commentary on 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'll share what I learned from that. So six responses from Grudem. Number one, Paul is concerned about head coverings because it's an outward symbol of something else. But the meaning of such a symbol will vary according to how people in a given culture understand it. It'd be wrong to require the same symbol today if it carried a completely different meaning. No matter what people think about requiring head coverings for women today, all interpreters agree that head covering was a symbol for something else and that Paul was concerned about it because of what, it's, what it symbolized. Whatever we think of a head covering, whatever we think that that symbolized in first century Corinth, it does not symbolize the same thing today. Can we agree on that? Like a woman wearing a Head covering today didn't, doesn't now symbolize exactly what it symbolized then, okay? In my experience, in our culture, a woman wearing a head covering normally symbolizes, that's a nice hat. It's like a, it's a fashion statement. It's, it's, it's about the look. Uh, I'm thinking in our church context, not, yeah, not Islam. Thank you. Um, so 
uh, back to Grudem. He says, that means if Paul's concern was over what a head covering symbolized, then he wouldn't want women to wear a head covering in a situation where a head covering didn't carry the same symbolic meaning. Number two, the most likely meaning of a woman wearing a head covering in first century Corinth was to indicate she was married. I'm going to come back to that. But no such meaning would be understood from a woman's head covering today. Third, today we obey the head covering commands for women in 1 Corinthians 11 by encouraging married women to wear whatever symbolizes being married in their own cultures. And then four, the situation is far different with male headship and marriage in the church. These are not just outward symbols that can vary from culture to culture. They're the reality itself. So a head covering symbolizes something, but teaching or exercising authority over a man isn't symbolizing something that, that's a thing. That's the reality. So we're comparing apples and oranges. Fifth, Christians who believe that 1 Corinthians 11 requires women for all times to have head coverings in church should obey this passage and not regard it. I was, my wife and I first married. Our first two years, we were part of a church where the, the elders of that church uh, taught that women should wear head coverings in the, in the assembly. So I was not convinced of that from Scripture. But in that context, not wearing a head covering communicated something. <laughs> so she wore a head covering, uh, and I was happy to do that. And then six, a woman's head covering in 1 Corinthians 11.10 is not a symbol of her authority to prophesy. It's a symbol of her, her husband's authority over her. That's, those are six points from Grudem. Here's my follow-up. Um, and I, I learned this about the historical cultural context, mainly from a guy named Bruce Winter. Have you heard of Bruce Winter? He used to be the, the head of Tyndall House in Cambridge. He's the man on historical context of Corinth. Uh, I don't know anybody alive who knows more about it than he does. And it just so happened that uh, I took a six-month sabbatical in Cambridge, England, that overlapped with a couple months of him being there at the same time. And we got to talk about it almost every day. Uh, it was so cool. So uh, here's what I learned from him. Uh, number one, during pagan religious ceremonies, priests, so Roman, uh, Roman men with a high social status, would pull their togas over their heads when they led by praying or sacrificing. So if socially elite men in the Corinthian church covered their head when they prayed or prophesied during corporate worship, it would be like highlighting their social status instead of highlighting Christ, the church's head. And they might even exclude low-status people from praying or prophesying. So Paul's saying, men, don't adopt that syncretistic custom. Number two, these are three, three things I learned here. Number two, a woman's covering her head socially indicated that she was married. So Grudem said that a moment ago. Uh, so I, what I learned from, from Bruce Winter is that a, a thin headscarf or a head covering symbolized a married woman's modesty and chastity and submission to her husband. And this was one of the ways that a wife honored her husband publicly. A wife who refused to cover her head publicly disgraced her husband. And as you read through 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 2 to 17, 2 to 16, the word gune occurs over and over and over. And you have to be a very sensitive reader because sometimes it, it means woman, sometimes it means wife. Uh, it's ambiguous in Greek. It, the context indicates it. I think the ESV gets it right by translating it wife uh, over in verses 3, 5, 6, 10, and 13. Third observation I learned, uh, a new kind of wife was emerging at this time in the Roman world, the one who rebelled against the cultural milieu that allowed husbands to be sexually permissive but not the wives. And one of the ways that wives would flaunt that freedom was by removing their veils. So for a Christian wife to deliberately remove her veil, especially by praying or prophesying during a time of corporate worship, would it would contentiously identify her with these other promiscuous women. So I think that's, I, I know not all scholars agree on that, so I'm, I'm holding that loosely, 
but that, that's what I found to be the most persuasive historical cultural context for 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. The problematic issue is that the, the Corinthian Christians could wear or not wear these head coverings in a way that defiantly flouted God's beautiful design for husbands and wives. The main idea in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16 is in verses 4 and 5. Uh, so it's that when praying or prophesying in a church meeting, men who cover their heads dishonor Christ and wives who uncover their heads dishonor their husbands. And there's not an exact parallel to that today. So I know some people will say, you know, it's like wearing your wedding ring or, there's just, or wearing a modest, modest outfit or something. There's no perfect uh, parallel at all that I can think of. Uh, but I can think of some ways that we could parallel being scandalous. So uh, for a Christian husband to dress like a Ku Klux Klan member or like a Buddhist monk or wearing a dress, that would be scandalous in a church meeting, wouldn't it? For a church member to do that? I, I think that's about the kind of scandal you would feel for a man to cover his head in that context in Corinth. Or for a woman, it'd be like in a church meeting for a Christian wife to show up wearing a bikini or dressed like a prostitute or refusing to wear her wedding ring because she doesn't want to publicly indicate that she's married. It'd be that kind of scandal. I'm sure you've got questions on this. I'm going to keep rolling and then we'll do that. Question or Argument eight. There was a woman, apostle, named Junia. Romans 16, 7. All right, so here's, here's, here's how to work through this one. The, the name there in Greek, it could be either a man's name or a woman's name. According to the spelling, it's not absolutely 100% certain which it is. And there's a phrase there. So Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia or Junias. I'm not sure which one it is. So Junia would be the woman, Junias would be the man. Uh, and then the phrase, well known to the apostles. Uh, I'm not going to give you all the technical details, but Michael Burr and Dan Wallace and others, Al Walters, have recently written detailed journal articles on this demonstrating that the phrase, well known to the apostles, not one of the apostles, uh, is the way to read that. Further, uh, in the first 400 years after the New Testament, there's very little comment on this name, Junia or Junias, and the comments are mixed regarding whether it's a man or a woman. But the evidence from Latin seems to favor the view that this was a woman's name, Junia. And the word translated apostles further could mean church messengers. So apostle has this semantic range, and it could just mean church messenger here, as it does in 2 Corinthians 8.23 and Philippians 2.25. So the, the claim that there was an apostle named Junia is built upon one uncertainty, whether the person was a man or a woman, on top of another uncertainty, whether this word apostle refers to like one of the 12 apostles or to just a church messenger. And that's built on top of an improbable meaning of the phrase, well-known among the apostles rather than well-known to the apostles. You pull it together and it's a speculative, flimsy foundation to base an argument on. Argument nine, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15 is not universally binding because the women in Ephesus were either not teaching doctrine or were not educated. I've, I read that passage earlier, so I won't reread re it now. So in reply, um, the only false teachers named at Ephesus that we know of are male. 
That's the first reply. The, the, the text doesn't mention any females. Then, there's no clear proof of women teaching false doctrine at Ephesus, inside the Bible or outside the Bible. Further, uh, the Krogers, uh, uh, Richard and Catherine Kroger, claim that there's this Gnostic heresy that Eve was created for Adam. There's no historical basis for that. That's another, another argument for, for this. Further, if the fact that some people were teaching false doctrine disqualified everyone of the same sex from teaching, then all men would be disqualified from teaching. I'm just following that same logic. And then further, Paul gives the reason for his command. This is what I find helpful. Uh, when he says, oh, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, uh, but she must remain silent, for the reasons he gives are not because, they're, they're not the type of reasons that would say, oh, this applies only to this specific context in Ephesus at this time. The reasons he gives are indicating this is for all times in all cultures because he, he roots them in creation itself. And it's, it's very precarious to substitute a reason Paul doesn't give for, what, for a reason that he does give. Further, the argument that no men were even present with the women fails to consider what the actual wording of the text says. Uh, many men and many women had basic literary skills and literacy skills in the first century. Very few men or women had education beyond this. It's simply not true that no women in the first century churches were well, were, were well enough educated to be teachers or rulers in the church, and therefore lack, lack of education can't be the reason for Paul's statement. Remember uh, Priscilla uh, with her husband Aquila uh, explained the way of God more accurately to Apollos? So, example, there, there were women who knew the Bible well, and she was in Ephesus. Uh, so lack of education is not the reason that Paul gives for restricting teaching and governing roles to women. The text doesn't say, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because women lack education. So to, to insist that that's the reason is to substitute the reasons that, that God does give for a reason he doesn't give. And then if lack of education were the reason, it would be unfair and inconsistent for Paul not to prohibit teaching by uneducated men, which he doesn't do. Okay, there's so much more we could say about that passage. I'm going to let those stay for now and go on to argument 10. Uh, not exercise authority in 1 Timothy 2.12 means not domineer. So there, in, that, in that book... Uh, edited by Schreiner and Kostenberger. The third edition has a, an extensive word study by Al Walters on, on this word translated to exercise authority over. It's, it's fantastic. And it's an amazing study. And he shows that the verb does not mean misuse authority or domineer or murder, but it must mean something positive. This exercising authority is something positive. In another study... Uh, uh, of 100 parallel examples to the sentence structure in 1 Timothy, it showed this important conclusion. It's by Andreas Kostenberger. So what he found is that in the New Testament, you've got 52 examples of the construction in 1 Timothy 2.12. So you can have neither verb A nor verb B. So I don't, I don't allow a woman to teach nor to exercise authority over a man. So neither A nor B. So that construction... Of, of, of every time that occurs, it's either one of two patterns. Either it's two activities or concepts are both positive or two activities or concepts are both negative. 
So if you're going to say have, to exercise authority is negative, then you have to say that teaching is negative. But everyone concedes that the teaching is positive. So if the teaching is positive grammatically, then the exercise in authority needs to be positive. So to translate that as domineering, like exercising authority badly, uh, doesn't work grammatically. All right, now argument 11. The eternal relations of authority and submission view of the Trinity is essential to complementarianism. Several of you asked about this earlier today, so here we go. In June 2016, some of you might remember this when this happened, uh, a theological debate erupted about the father-son relationship of authority and submission. The question was, is that authority-submission relationship eternal? No one debates whether Jesus submits to the father during his earthly ministry. The question is, was he doing that in eternity past, prior to the incarnation, and is he doing that ascension onward and forever? Or is it just incarnation? Should, should we say he, he eternally submits to the Father? That's the debate. So it, and it's applying to the economic trinity, the, the functional trinity. So Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware, among others, have argued for this position, the eternal relations of authority and submissions view. I don't find that view persuasive. I don't, I don't teach that. Uh, but I do want to reply to some opponents like Amy Bird because I think people who are rejecting complementarianism, when they bring this issue up, I don't think they're being fair in how they represent people like Grudem and Ware. So a few points here. Uh, Bird misrepresents the eternal relations of authority and submission view when she says this, this doctrine teaches that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is subordinate to the Father, not only in the economy of salvation, but in his essence. And Grudem and Ware have explicitly rejected what she just said. I showed that to, to Wayne Grudem earlier this year, and it just grieves him. And he was just finishing up his second edition of a systematic theology that comes out later this year. And he went and added a whole section uh, where he quotes her and basically says, she is bearing false witness. This is lying. Because the very page where she quotes me, I specify exactly what she's claiming, I believe, and I'm denying that. So it's major misrepresentation. A second, Bird misrepresents the motives of those who teach this view when she asserts that they employ, quote, an unorthodox teaching of the Trinity, the eternal subordination of the Son, in order to promote subordination of women to men. I know these guys. I know Wayne. I know Bruce. I've stayed in Bruce's home. You probably know Bruce. He's been here? Has Bruce ever been? Yeah. He's the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Like, when, when, when he teaches this, he's not like, oh, how can I find some teaching to, to, under, to, 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 to support the view that women are subordinate to men? He's just trying to be a faithful expositor. What's motivating him is he's reading texts like 1 Corinthians 11.3 that says that, that the, the head of Christ is God. And he's trying to make sense of what that means. That's, that's what, where this is coming from. It's not coming from this, this warped you know, motive to try to make all women be subordinate to all men. Third, Bird implies that theologians like Grudem and Ware are heretics and thus not genuine Christians. So she says uh, that theologians, hold the, those who hold the, to ESS, eternal uh, submission of the Son, or eternal relations of authority and submission, that, that is a first order error, like, like so serious that it's, it's she says it's, uh, these people are, quote, unorthodox teachers that are not in line with Nicene Trinitarian doctrine. So it's implying that they're heretics. 
And I just want to say what they are teaching is not heresy. They're not going to hell for, for believing and teaching what they're, they're teaching. It's within the bounds of orthodoxy in my view. And then finally, uh, Bird repeatedly writes that if, she writes as if this view, the view that Grudem and Ware hold, as if it's essential to complementarianism. And that's where I was like, no, it's not. Uh, and, and I understand why some might think that because Grudem and Ware have been so influential in, in complementarianism. But uh, many complementarians have intensely criticized their view. Uh, most complementarians realize that Grudem and Ware did make some theological missteps. Even Grudem and Ware have acknowledged some of those. But more importantly, complementarianism does not stand or fall based on whether eternal, the eternal submission of the Son is true or false. It's not in the Danvers statement. It's, it's just not what all complementarians affirm. It's not tied to a particular view of the Trinity. So I just want to disconnect that to think, oh, if I'm a complementarian, I've got to hold that view of the Trinity. Not the case. Last argument, then we'll do Q&A. Uh, male headship inevitably leads to abuse. This, this argument really, really, really bothers me. Um, let, me, let me read you Grudem's response first here. Abuse of wives by husbands is a horrible evil that all who believe the Bible to be the word of God should oppose. It's not biblical male leadership. It's distorting and abusing biblical male leadership that leads to abuse and repressing women. Any teaching that stresses a wife's submission to her husband without at the same time stressing the husband's obligation to love and care for his wife and that men and women have equal value before God is a distortion of the biblical teaching. It's cruel to tell wives who are being physically abused simply to stay and endure the suffering. Such advice will often lead to more violence and harm against them and their children. When we become aware of a situation where a wife is being abused by her husband, we should take whatever steps we can to bring about personal confrontation and accountability for the abuser, church discipline, police protection, civil penalties in the court system, physical removal of the wife and children from the house for their protection, and other appropriate means in order to protect the abused and bring an end to the violence. Biblical male headship, rightly understood, protects women from abuse and repression, and it truly honors them as equal in value before God. Further, statistics claiming to connect male headship with abuse of women are misleading. And by contrast, feminism robs women of their femininity and womanhood as God created them and is destructive to both men and women alike. That's, that's Gruden's response. And, and many others have, have, have made this claim. I've, I've talked to some who've said, where in the Bible does it say that that men are responsible to, to protect women. Because remember how, how Piper defines masculinity? He includes in the phrase, in, in, his, in his definition, that, that men are those who protect others. That's what it, part of what it means to be a man. And, and abusing is the opposite of protecting. So, so complementarianism is teaching that men are protectors. They're not abusers. So you can't use complementarianism to justify abuse. That's the opposite of complementarianism. So where in the Bible does it say that men are protectors? Uh, I, I love this. This is a, another section from, from Grudem's book. He says, uh, biblical support for the idea that the man has the primary responsibility to protect his family is found in Deuteronomy 20, where men go to war, not women, and many other passages like that. 
uh, in Deuteronomy 24, Joshua 1, Judges 4. So Barak doesn't get the glory because he insisted that a woman accompany him into battle. Nehemiah 4, where the people are to fight for their brothers, their homes, their wives, their children. doesn't say they're to fight for their husbands. Jeremiah 50, it's the disgrace of a nation when its warriors become children, excuse me, when its warriors become women. Nahum 3, behold, your troops are women in your midst. That's a taunt. He's mocking them. Matthew 2, Joseph is told to protect Mary and baby Jesus by taking them to Egypt. Ephesians 5, a husband's love should extend even to a willingness to lay down his life for his wife. That's something many soldiers have done in battle throughout history to protect their families and their, their homelands. 1 Peter 3, 7, a wife is a weaker vessel and, and therefore the husband is generally stronger, has a greater responsibility to use his strength to protect his wife. And one last comment before we transition to Q&A is biblical manhood opposes not just domestic abuse, but the cowardly activity of indulging in pornography. That's the opposite of masculinity because, among other sins, it exploits women instead of protecting them. 